ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and in this episode of This Working Life, I sit down with ABC journalist and presenter Lee Sales. In her new book, Storytellers, Lee shares hard-won lessons on how to craft a story, how to listen and how to be brave enough to ask that question at work. If you have to raise something awkward, and not just in an interview, in life, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> and people think, because of what I do for a job, that, oh, well, I must be just naturally able to do that. No, I have to psych myself up to it. It's really, really difficult. And you'll also get some insights into Lee's own career, what helps her flow state, and how anxiety has been a pretty consistent part of her work life. It was a bad dream. It was like a tsunami and then this huge wave, like just a horrible, Mm. overwhelming kind of dream. And then the day after I left 7.30, I had this dream and for the first time ever I dreamt I was surfing. It was amazing. That is actually phenomenal. I know. I started by asking Lee to take us back to before she was a journalist. So, Lee, before you found journalism, you dreamt of being a musical theatre star (laughs) and you taught piano at uni, you even had a job as a wedding singer. So what is it about musical theatre that you love? I remember going with my mother to the school musical when I was in grade eight or nine and I had never seen anything like that and I just thought it was amazing, just blew my mind. And then I, of course, wanted to be in the school musical. I liked, I really loved music and, and was learning music as a kid and I also loved drama. And so to me it was like, oh, my God, you can do something where you're doing music and drama. So I just loved it. I think if you've learnt music as a kid, a lot of the skills that you learn are super useful life skills. So, for example... I know to trust the process that if you practice something that it is going to get better, even though I must admit at the moment with my cello practice, I just am like, God, is this disaster ever going to improve? But actually, to be honest, it does. And then you sort of, you go through these weeks where you think nothing's happening and then suddenly one day it's like, wow, that just sounds better. Or you can actually do something that you couldn't do before. So that is a very handy life lesson to learn that if you keep doing something. The other thing that I reckon in my job that music has taught me is how to actually listen. Because a lot of people don't listen at all. And they're often thinking about what they're going to say next. Whereas you can't actually play music if you're not listening to yourself and if you're not listening to other people, if you're playing in a group. And so I think some of those skills have translated, you know, into what I do every single day. We've done an episode called The T-Shaped Worker. So the the vertical is the depth of technical expertise. Oh, yeah. And the horizontal is kind of the width. Yeah. All these different experiences and interests, passions can actually round you out as a worker and make you that little bit more different, bringing a different paradigm to the work that you do. I think so. And I think also having things like that make you... Well, they give you, for me, they give me a good outlet from work. So, for example, when I play music, it's a totally different part of my brain than when I'm doing my job as a journalist. When I would get home from 7.30, you know, my brain might be really hectic. Um, And so music practice or cooking, they're activities that you cannot keep ruminating on what you're doing because you can't execute the activity. And so I think those things can also be good to help you switch off from your job. Mm. Can you also transpose any of the music in terms of flow and being in a flow state even when you're broadcasting? Definitely, because 
One of the things that I, it's actually worse with cello than piano, but if you are trying to do something and there's a hard passage coming up and you think, here comes the hard passage, here comes the hard passage, and you start overthinking, like, is it is it three over or four? I, I, I can't remember. And you start thinking about it, you're guaranteed you won't be able to play it. You have to have practised it enough that when you actually hit it, it's kind of like your hand almost just does it automatically. It's what people refer to as muscle memory. And so I notice with cello, I find it harder to not self-sabotage because all of it's in touch with your body. So any tension in your body, it's just guaranteed that it's going to ruin the bowing or ruin something about it. And so to remain in the moment and not overthink it is extremely difficult. Now, that is exactly the same when you're in a like live interview with the Prime Minister, where if he says something and you think that's wrong, should I interrupt? Oh, I'm not sure you've missed it, too late, gone, the moment's gone. So you have to be in that flow where you're kind of trusting your instinct, which is, of course, built from many, many times of having done it before. And you just got to keep on going as well. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you get a downward spiral when you make a mistake yep. and it gets worse and worse, <laughs> yes. but you actually have to move on. Yeah. Keep on playing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which I stop in my lesson all the time. And my teacher, who's the principal at the Sydney Symphony, says to me, Oh, I'd love to have this luxury. Love to have the luxury to just go, oh, I can do it better than this. Let me, I'm just going to start from the start again. Um, Everybody stop. <laughs> one of the floor managers that I worked with, who, who's the person who in a television studio is you as the anchor have have someone in there with you who's controlling. These days they control the cameras and, and everything as well and they're kind of your conduit to what's going on out the back. This person said to me when I was a quite junior presenter, when things go wrong, you have to immediately let it go and then you, you'll have a debrief about it later or process it later. But the situation is if if everyone starts obsessing about what just went wrong, it is a self-fulfilling just snowball of things going wrong. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse and the whole thing starts to feel out of control. And then everyone gets out of flow because they're overthinking stuff because they're fearful of more mistakes. And then you are just absolutely a lock that there's going to be a heap more mistakes. So often if you were doing a live show and something went wrong... So the whole show would be kind of off because everyone gets rattled. <laughs> yeah. It's really tricky. Yeah, it's like a domino effect. It's a domino effect for sure. You shared that when you grew up you were not surrounded by journalists, writers, artists no. or musicians. So you saw it really as hobbies rather than a profession. So yeah. how did this perspective change? I think probably a fair way into my career, to be honest. You know, I chose journalism as a job because I didn't think that being trying to write novels would be a reliable occupation. And so journalism seemed like, okay, well, that's words and writing and talking to people, but it's a job. So great. That's a trade. It's a job. I'll do that. So then I did that. And then I've really, in my journalistic career, I've followed a very kind of old-fashioned conventional path, which is you're a news reporter, you're off air, and then you become an on-air news reporter, and then you become a foreign correspondent, and then you get a shot presenting, and then you're presenting the, you know, Mm. main show, blah, blah, blah. Very conventional kind of path. Probably um, because through my work, I've gotten to meet more people who do make a living as writers and artists and things like that. I think, oh yeah, that is possible. Or it's possible, you know, not everyone's going to be Ben Quilty or Richard Tonietti or someone who's really great at those things, but plenty of people do scrape by and are able to pursue their passions. And so I think the idea I had that those things aren't an option at all was kind of not really right. I've picked up some lessons that I think we can learn from your career. 
Lesson number one, how to handle rejection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in your early 20s, you were pulled aside by a TV boss who told you that you didn't have the looks or voice to be on TV. I wonder and reflect on how many people have had those moments. Where, oh, heaps. Right? Yeah. So tell me about how you felt and how you reacted to that. Uh, again, I was super young, so I was very hurt and took it really personally and, um, you know, kind of a bit of a hit to my self-esteem. But I think also I I thought, I mean, I didn't know that he he was wrong about my looks and my voice, but I thought that I had more potential. So I, I think I kind of took it and thought, okay, well, he doesn't think that I'm going to be able to do this, so my options here are limited, so I should look around elsewhere. And so that kind of – I didn't kind of – I mean, I did go off and, and was crushed, but I didn't kind of then remain like that. I was like, okay, I think I've got to just cut my losses and have a look for a job elsewhere. Some people might have given up completely. Complete, oh, totally. I know. It's terrible, isn't it, I think? Yeah. I think, too, of my friends that I went to uni with and studied journalism, only one other person now, to my knowledge, is in journalism. And many of them got out of journalism really fast. Like, they either didn't do it at all or they did it for a very short time and then moved out. And I do think it's kind of – Kumi Taguchi raises this, too, in Storytellers, that – it does reward a certain kind of personality often, which is the kind of person who's got the tough hide that can take a remark like that. And so that's why I think you, almost everyone you talk to will have a crushing story of when they were a young journo being discouraged in some way by somebody for various reasons. Um, and I think that's why news reporters tend to be a kind of tough breed because if you're not able to kind of be a bit water off a duck's back, um you're just not going to like the job, basically. It's kind of like self-weeding, but I wonder, yeah. reflecting back on that now, whether you think it might weed out types that might be great in Definitely, journalism. 100%. It does because not everyone – this always used to strike me at 7.30. There's different kinds of reporters. If you had a whole team of people who were Chris Masters or um, Lee Sales or whatever, then – well, that's not going to work. The whole show can't be hard-edged kind of stuff. You want some people who are better at able to craft colour stories or who are good at getting people to open up, who um, are great with talent, who get them to relax and so forth. You want people who are really beautiful crafters of pictures. So I think to make a program work, you need lots of different kinds of personalities in the mix. And so I think, unfortunately, probably the hard competitive nature of news, as you say, does weed out some people who would be great in journalism. So let's go to lesson two, be in the moment. So you learnt a work and career lesson around 2000. You left a job you really loved. You shifted to a different job in the newsroom. Uh, my reading is it's a quick stepping stone to the next <laughs> yes. job, Washington correspondent. Yep. What did you realise? I realised that if you're in a job that you'd like, don't be in such a super hurry to get out of it because Particularly in my 20s, I would I would start a job and then I would think after a short period of time, okay, right, I've nailed it. What's next? What's next? I was always looking for what was next. And so it meant that a few times I left positions that I was actually really enjoying and I liked the people I was working with and then ended up in something where it was like, oh, this isn't quite as much fun as that other job and I really miss getting to see Dan every day or you know whatever I was doing. 
I can't complain because overall my career has ended up kind of where I wanted it to be and it maybe wouldn't have if I hadn't done that. But I do feel as I've gotten older, I've gotten much better at going, this is great and it's a privilege and it's fun and one day it will be over and so it's good to enjoy it now mm. while you can. And so 7.30 in the final, I mean, I knew for about nine months before I announced I was going that I was going and in that period of time particularly, I really was able to think and focus all the time on this. I'm so lucky. This is an amazing privilege to get to do this and look at who I'm talking to this week. And, you know, it was it was fantastic. And I think that's a really much better way to approach work than to all the time be trying to plot what's coming next. Mm. And why the hurry? Why the hurry? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was back from Washington at 32. Wow. And I mean, that's kind of a, to be Washington correspondent, it's a career aspiration. So when I came back, I, I thought, right, well now, I don't, everything had been geared up towards doing that. So then it's like, all right, well now what do I do? Retire. And, retire. Exactly. <laughs> I wish. Job done. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's better to be, I mean, look. As I say, it's hard for me to give advice because I have had an amazing career that I've got to lots of places I've wanted to get to. But I think generally what I would say to people is probably don't do it like I did it, where you've got a very like set, I want to do this, then I want to do that. Because that closes you, I think, sometimes to opportunities that might come along. Because for me, I was thinking, well, I want to be the Washington correspondent. Maybe a path could have come along where I could have worked, gone to a show like Insight, and that would have suited me and been a really interesting career. But I definitely wouldn't have been open to it because I would have felt like, well, this is what I have to do. Or things mm. like I felt like I wanted to be on air. Well, then that you know means there's lots of amazing, interesting behind the scenes jobs that I never got to do. And there's a lot of luck involved in the timing. So say, for example, Kerry O'Brien, who hosted 7.30 before me, did it for about 15 years. If you'd been in the mix of people at the time that Kerry got that job, if you were Maxine McHugh or Tony Jones or whoever was around in that era, by the time Kerry left, that, yeah. that's gone, that window's closed. And then if you were someone who was in the mix, say, when I got the job in 20, late 2010, I was appointed, well, then I did it for 12 years. And so, again, maybe your life has moved on and that window's closed. When I got the job, I'd been trying to get pregnant for quite a while, hadn't, was thinking, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. And then got the job and then within about a month was pregnant. I, I do honestly wonder if I had already been pregnant, if I wouldn't have got the job or if I was on maternity leave just because out of mind, out of sight. I don't know if I would have got it. Or maybe if I had a baby, I would have thought it would be too hard. I don't know. But um, I think people often talk about hard work, discipline, focus, all the rest of it. But one of the most overlooked things is luck. And I think I've been massively lucky. And maybe the people who missed out on... 7.30 uh, doing musical theatre. Exactly, that's right. They think, <laughs> she sucks to be sales. <laughs> now we're going to share a beautiful, magical moment. So you, you've been interviewing Paul McCartney and this happens. Lots of people have anxiety dreams about their work. Do you ever find that you do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, ever since I started performing, you all, there's like a recurring dream, which is and I still have it to this day, which is um, you're in a stadium and you're playing, you know, with the Beatles or with the band and people start leaving. And it's like, okay, what are we doing wrong? What's going on? And it's like, oh, quick, you know, we're trying to pull out the big one. Quick. Hey, Jude, quick. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? That's so amazing, isn't it? Even Paul McCartney has the anxiety dreams. 
share what was happening there and, and the circumstances around it. So with very, very famous people, they're really difficult to interview because they've been interviewed a million times before. And so they've been asked almost everything that you can possibly think of to ask them. So I was always looking for interviews with people like that where there might be a question that might unlock them and relax them. And that question, you can hear it straight away that he, because he laughs when I ask, he kind of goes, oh. and so it's something, the reason it unlocks people is because it's fresh, because they haven't had to say it 8 million times before. Yeah. And so then you get a genuine human moment. And then of course, because it's a genuine thing for him, the audience responds to it because it's genuine for them too. So it's this really wonderful interaction. And so that moment in that interview, the interview was going fine. And then from when I asked that question, then it went really great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And the energy, doesn't it? It just sort of gives yeah, it the it changes, energy as well. Yeah, the energy changes. Yeah. And in fact, um, you also had a recurring anxiety dream. Oh, yeah. So I'd had this dream for years and years and years. It was a bad dream. It was like a tsunami. The circumstances would always be different, but it always involved a tsunami. And so sometimes I'd be standing at a beach somewhere and I'd see the water suck out, which is the first sign of a tsunami, and then this huge wave coming in. And then sometimes I'd be maybe in a car driving up a hill and I could see it in the rearview mirror. Sometimes I'd be running upstairs in an apartment block. Sometimes I'd be on a boat. Sometimes it would get me. Sometimes it would be behind me, like just a horrible, mm. overwhelming kind of dream. And I, I always felt like the news is just such a sea of uncontrollable facts coming at you all the time. It kind of made sense to me. And then the day after I left 7.30, I had this dream and for the first time ever I dreamt I was surfing. It was the ocean and I was surfing. <laughs> I wasn't in it being buffeted around or scared of it. It was amazing. So That is actually phenomenal. I know. It was like my subconscious was just relaxed because I knew that my phone wasn't going to be ringing at any second of the day to tell me to upend my life or do whatever. So it was very reassuring, actually. I felt like, wow, that's really interesting. Some people might be surprised to hear, because you have described yourself as an anxious person, mm. you appear so confident on TV. So how do you deal with feelings of anxiety? I think having, I for me, distraction is a useful tool. And it's one of the reasons I like music because any activity that forces you to stop ruminating about what worries you is a useful thing to do. And cooking or for me, music practice it's a different part of my brain to work and it requires enough concentration that you cannot keep stressing about work if you want to actually be doing that activity. Now, your book's storytellers, so you interview a range of journalists, but of course it's relevant to everyone because yeah. as you say, storytelling is ubiquitous at work. In what way? Well, I think what connects us to each other as human beings is all the little stories we tell. Whether you are talking to a neighbour over a fence with an anecdote about something in the neighbourhood, <laughs> whether it's a pilot coming over to explain why flight's been delayed, whether it's a lawyer trying to persuade a jury, every single day it's just like a rich array of stories that we're all telling each other. And that's what makes us understand each other, our ability to tell those stories in a compelling kind of way. And as we would all know, some people are better at this than others. Some people are very compelling storytellers and some people, I remember once reading Helen Garner describe her mother as someone who was a terrible anecdote teller <laughs> and she said she would often start anecdotes days, months or even years before their proper beginning. 
Um, so all of us can become better at storytelling. And what I've realised over the years of doing journalism is the kind of tools that we apply in telling stories are things that literally anyone could apply in many, many jobs. Just things around clear, concise communication, listening, thinking about what's the natural beginning of this story, where, where should I end? Um, <laughs> all of those kind of points are things that are so applicable to so many fields. One surprise factor for me was political interviewing, which I find terrifying. (laughs) But I do think it's relevant for a lot of people because there are moments where at work you may need to speak up or you may notice something and you need to ask a good question. What did you notice that people were tapping into, including yourself, when you're doing that political interview and you need to ask that question? I think firstly... There's a couple of things. So I interviewed Laurie Oakes in depth about this in Storytellers, who was, as people probably remember, the legendary political editor at Channel 9. And one of the key things is to be prepared both psychologically and with what you want to say. So you don't always have the luxury of this because sometimes you might be in a meeting and something comes up unexpectedly. But often if you have to raise something awkward, you know that you're going to be raising it. And so In an interview situation, say, for example, I was going to be interviewing someone and because I'd listened to previous interviews of theirs, I knew that they had a certain line that they were going to put out and I knew that it was misinformation or I'd have to correct them. Before the interview, I would make sure I was armed with the facts and I would even sometimes write down a form of words I could use that would be calm and respectful. So I might say, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just need to pick you up on this point about blah, 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 and then, you know, off you kind of go. And I would try to do it in a polite kind of considered way. But the other thing too is that you have to get your head around is if you have to raise something awkward and not just in an interview, in life, it's hard. Yeah. (laughs) And people think because of what I do for a job that, oh, well, I must be just naturally able to do that. No, I have to psych myself up to it. It's really, really difficult. Every time? Pretty much, yeah. And so I would always try to make sure I'd done all my preparation so I could feel like, no, you've done all the preparation, you're very across this material, that it's you on top of your brief, things like that. So whatever psychological tool it is, there were certain things I'd have to do to kind of give myself a little boost that I can do it, I can get in there. You talked about the moment when you resigned from doing 7.30 and you've also referred to yourself as having a sort of 7.30 persona, which may have prevented you from doing Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Can we talk about identity? Yep. So how do you keep a sense of who you are? I think it's through having good relationships in reality and understanding that that is the most important thing. Like I'm always happy if things I do for work go well, there's a sense of achievement in that and so forth. But at the end of the day, like when I think about, say, my oldest friends that I went to school with, they have been friends with me for 30 years and they kind of picked me and presumably would have remained friends with me if I worked at Macca's or if I did what I'm doing now. They almost never ask me about what I'm doing now. They're not that interested in it. And that's very reassuring to me that they like me for who I actually am. Obviously, being a journalist and a writer or whatever is part of my identity, but it's not all of my identity. The most important thing to me by far is my people. Have you always been like that and retained that? 
Uh, I think I was more ambitious when I was younger. I mean, I've always valued my friendships very much, but I think I was much more driven when I was younger and more in a hurry and less able to appreciate things in the moment. I think sometimes that's a a thing of realising, especially with all the people I've been exposed to in the news, that life can be very hard for people sometimes and you've got to take your moments of joy and pleasure where you get them. And, And sometimes it might just be that you see a nice flower in the street and the rest of your day might be absolute crap, but at least you got to see that beautiful flower. I'm a bit more plugged into that stuff now. And your best habit? I don't think that I waste time. (laughs) I think I use my time very productively. I I almost never have a day where I think, oh, I've just frittered the day away, which probably is bad, actually. I probably should have some days like that. No, we don't need to judge it. I think that's (laughs) awesome. I don't – I kind of, if I've got a minute, a spare 10 minutes, I'll – I don't know, I'll just – get something done. Um, and so I, I just can get a lot, I can squeeze in a lot of stuff because I, I, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't just sit around and spool through TikTok for an hour, for example. That's so. great. You've got cello practice to do. I've that's cello why. practice to do, exactly. But like I say, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing to be filling up every minute like that, um, even though I said I it's think a good I think as habit. long as you're enjoying it, yeah, I think say, that's to good. Not judge it. Yeah, yeah, it's just what I'm like. I just I hate wasting time. Thank you for squeezing us in, Lee. That's what (laughs) I want to say. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks to Lee Sales, to producer Zoe Ferguson and to sound engineer Carrie Dell. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. And if you enjoyed today's episode, send it to a friend or a colleague. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.